BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you, baby, that brown liquor make my heart go quicker. Welcome to the Leisure Class. I'm your host, Jack Song, a podcast dedicated to turning you on to the good stuff, a gathering place for the many kindred spirits I am grateful to call friends. Musicians, writers, artists, chefs, cocktail wizards, and wine geeks, all members of the Leisure Class. Hey, beautiful friends. It's a gorgeous day here in Mississippi. Daffodils are out. Sun's out. This is the best time down here in the South. (laughs) Abby. Abby, there's nobody there, baby. Her bark is 17 times larger than she is. (laughs) She keeps a guard watch on the chicken house here. It's pretty funny. You know, a lot of folks know that I love cooking. I enjoy it. I've done it for a long time. I'm a bit of a kitchen tool geek. You know, I'm always willing to check out the latest gadget. Like, you know, I got into sous vide circulators for a while, and I bought an Instapot, and I got an air fryer, and they all end up on the shelves. I learned early on that, you know, one of the most important tools you can have as a home cook is a great chef's knife. You don't need a big 21-piece set of knives and a wood block. You just need a well-made balanced, super sharp chef's knife. And that'll do almost all the cutting and chopping and slicing you come across. Well, about 10 years ago, I bought a chef's knife that changed my life. I tried a bunch of different brands for a while, but was never really into, they just never felt right. But at this time, I I happened to be living in Williamsburg in Brooklyn And this was after I had broken a promise to myself that I would never return to the corporate world, but, you know, sometimes money talks. I was the head of marketing for another business in the musical manufacturing space. And for a project I was working on, I was looking at video production houses because I wanted to create a series of short films about the company and the products. Thought that that would be a good way to really get the message out. And in my search, I came across this series of videos by a production house that featured local Brooklyn artisans of all different types. Graphic artist, a beekeeper, a salumi maker. And one of them was this guy, Joel, who was a knife maker. And he was forging his own blades in the old school Japanese tradition and handcrafting chef's knives with these beautiful exotic wood handles. And he had a really interesting business model. Every week, he would post a photo of the five or six knives that he made, because he was the only guy making them, on Instagram. And it was kind of a first-come, first-served system. If you were, the, were fast enough to claim the one you wanted, it was yours. But if you missed the window, you had to wait till next week to see what went up and try again. And I, got, I kept trying. 
I kept missing the, the lottery. And believe me, I tried to contact Joel directly, emails, text messages. And I finally got him on the phone and I pulled every trick out of my hat I could, including playing the Dire Straits card, to try to jump the line and get a knife without going through the system. To say that he was unimpressed <laughs> would be, you know, an overstatement. It took me six weeks of Instagram stalking to finally nail one. And when Joel asked me for my shipping address, I asked him if it would be okay if I could come by the shop to pick it up. So we had a chance to meet, and I was really interested in his story, how he came to, came to become a knife maker after, you know, six years of college and an MFA program. When I arrived at a small shop, there was a woman sitting at a table, lost in her laptop. She was the only other person there. And Joel handed me my knife, which is a beautiful blue-handled chef's knife with a nine-and-a-half-inch blade, and it is razor-sharp and perfectly balanced. My life was about to be changed forever. But it had nothing to do with the knife and everything to do with the young woman typing away on her laptop. In my conversation with Joel, I'd spoken to him about my writing and that I was working on a novel, and he remarked that his wife was a writer, and he called over to the woman at the table, and he says, Hey, Julia, this is Jack. He's working on a book, too. And this woman looks up and gives me a bright smile, and she waves me to come join, you know, come over to the table and hang out with her. Now, Julia is Julia Dahl, D-A-H-L, who is an award-winning writer of crime fiction. And as we were chatting about writing and what we were working on, I told her that because I was back at work, the biggest challenge I had was, you know, finding a chunk of uninterrupted time to write without distraction. And she told me about a place on Martha's Vineyard that held writer's residencies, where if your application was accepted, you could live in a, this big old sea captain's house that had 12 private rooms with private baths, and there was a huge kitchen, and you could stay for either a two- or four- or six-week period and just focus on writing. And I thanked her, but I knew with you know just starting this new job, I was probably not going to be able to take off anytime soon. But as luck would have it, a week later, I was fired. <laughs> And without that fat corporate check, I couldn't afford to live in New York City, so I split. And I thought, well, now I have time to write. But with absolute certainty that I would never be accepted because residencies were for real writers, and I did not consider myself a real writer, but I applied. And amazingly, I was accepted. My first residency there led to a four-year adventure as the writer-in-residence and house manager of the Nuepe Center for Literary Arts in Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard. For 10 months out of the year, I shared time, space, work, and dinners gathered around a large table with an amazing array of writers from every possible genre. It was life-changing. Here I was finally surrounded by people doing what I had dreamt of, and it really was, I learned so much. It was like my own MFA program. Nuepe is the Wampanoag Native American word for what we call Martha's Vineyard. And the word means 
place between two streams. And I'm fortunate and really grateful. I met so many kindred spirits. These friendships came late in life, which is a rare gift to be treasured because they can be life-changing. My guest today is one of those friends. We met in my early days at Nuepe and remain close friends to this day. When we come back, Sara Gadarzi joins us on this episode of The Leisure Class, brought to you by Newsweek. Sara Gadarzi is a fantastic writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Scientific American, National Geographic News. She has taught writing at NYU and is an alumna of the prestigious Tin House Residency. She was born in Tehran. She grew up in Iran, Kenya, and the U.S., and currently lives in Brooklyn. Sarah joins us for a conversation about her debut novel, The Almond in the Apricot, the story of Emma and her boyfriend Peter, both who are dealing with the death of their dear friend Spencer, both in very different ways. In this period of grieving, Emma begins to have dreams of being in another time and place while inhabiting the body of a young girl named Lily. The line between Emma's waking life and dream begin to blur, raising the possibility of the existence of parallel universes in this beautifully written exploration of the power of grief, loss, and love. Welcome to the Leisure Class, Sara. Hi, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. I want to ask you about the title of the book. When I first heard it, I had not a clue what it meant, but I'd love for you to sort of explain how you came about it and what it, how it fits with the narrative. I think I was about halfway through a, into a first draft and had written the title chapter where the kids break the apricot pit. I took that section to a workshop and we were chatting about it. And I realized while I was in the workshop that that had to be the title because it depicts the idea of a world inside of a world and also a surprise finding, which I think the main character discovers by the end of the story. I learned something, obviously, that I didn't realize that there was an actual almond that kind of tastes like an almond inside the pit of an apricot. Yeah, it's not an almond, but it's very almond-like. So it's shaped like an almond, and it has some of the characteristics of it. But yeah, it's very similar to an almond. What was the catalyst for the story? What was it that you know brought this about for you? I had a very clear image of the first two chapters. They were in my head, and I wrote them down. And for the most part, they've remained unchanged from the very first time I I wrote them. Um, I didn't know what the story was about, but I knew I wanted to write about war. And I wanted to write the human side of it. And I wanted to write about it in a way that I hadn't read with some magic in it. But I had no idea what the story was actually about at the time. Were those two chapters... They're the alternating chapters as they are now in the book? Yeah, they came together basically as a package. I wrote the first chapter in Tehran, the second chapter in New Jersey. They were alternating, and I immediately knew that they had to be in that structure. The structure also never changed from the very beginning. 
What I didn't know right away was what the connective tissue between those chapters were. And it took me a few drafts to figure out what the story was about and to understand that connection and to really make it fit. I think once I came up with the death of Emma's best friend, it all kind of started to fit together. Did you continue writing it in alternating chapters or did you write maybe, you know, longer passages from each side of the story and then edit it in later? Or was it really a back and forth throughout the whole process? It was really a back and forth. I wrote it in alternating chapters pretty much in every draft. At some point during the revision process, I separated them just so I could read them and see if each one had an arc. Had a, it, They were kind of like two novellas in a way. But I wanted to make sure each one had an narrative arc that worked on its own but in the in terms of writing it I was always writing it in alternating chapters I just at some point just looked at it just to make sure it's a unique approach and definitely a challenge to write two oh, a, two stories in one yeah it was a challenge although I feel like you know when you write a book length anything it's always a challenge no matter what structure you decide to go with or what the story is. It's always challenging. But yeah, definitely was a unique challenge. Maybe not something you want to do for your first novel, but <laughs> hey, that's how it goes. The novel deals with loss and grief and war. And the character Spencer, who is Emma's best friend, is not alive in the book other than in her memories. And you know, the absence of someone that we've lost, and I hate that word, lost. I don't know how to replace that because when someone leaves our lives, they're not lost. We know exactly where they are. They're not here. And that comes across in, in the book. Spencer's presence, his absence is this presence that carries throughout the book, which I find really fascinating, and you do a great job of depicting Emma's grief and what grief can do to you. Could you speak to, you don't have to dwell on it, but could you speak to your relationship to grief and how that formed this part of the story? Yeah, that's interesting that you said they're not lost. I think as you were speaking, I was thinking, you're right, they're not lost. They're out of reach. And I think that's really hard for us to to deal with, to understand it's so hard to put words that make sense of grief. It's so hard to make sense of it to begin with, but it's also even harder to try and assign words to the feelings that go, um, that explain grief. The relationships that we have with the person who is no longer with us are different. So the grief, the grief is sort of universal or connected to all of us. We're all fe- going through some phase of grief, but it's all incredibly unique because of our relationship. The relationships are so different, and the impact that that loss has on us is different in everyone, and I think you do, again, a wonderful job between Emma and Peter. Peter was not as close, but they had a relationship. There was the trio of them, but he's nowhere near as affected by the loss as Emma is. 
Yeah, that was one of those things that I kind of had to work back into the book. In the beginning of the book, when I first figured out that she has a best friend and the best friend dies, I just had him die, but I didn't have him in the book. But then I realized that to depict the gravity of what his death meant to her, I had to show what his life meant to her and what he meant to her. It also at some point became apparent to me that it wasn't enough that he was just her best friend. He had to play a larger role for her to react the way she did. So they were, of course, best friends, but there was also something else that was more than friends. They occupied this sort of undefined zone. So I went through different drafts, and I kept making him a bigger presence in her life and also in her relationship, like you just said. Um, with her boyfriend. So in many ways, he was important in Peter's life as well because he made Peter's relationship with Emma work. When he was gone, that relationship couldn't work anymore. They're like a three-legged structure. Take away the one leg and the structure collapses. There's no way you can hold it up with just the two legs. So they, Emma and Peter mean well and they're really trying to make this work afterwards, but they just can't. Right. How are you, in, in uh, her reflections and memories of Spencer and the things that she would latch on to, like when she's getting dressed and she thinks she muses on the shade of concealer that, that she's putting on and whether it was the right concealer, and she says, well, Spencer would know exactly what that was and help her through those sort of things and knew how to put outfits together for her. And, but their relationship was not sexual, um, even though that was something that she wanted, I believe. Or at least she thinks she wanted. Well, That's the thing. It was just this kind of, this in-between, I call it lanes, relationship lanes. You have like designated lanes for relationships, and then there's this like in-between space. And they were sort of in this in-between space. I also wonder if she could be with him, if that were a possibility, if that suddenly became a possibility, what would have happened? Right. Would she even really want that at the end? We don't know. You do a great if job of had... leaving those questions out there in this, but it's great, you know. Yeah, I think like you said, he was a huge presence in, it, in her life. And his death is a huge presence in her life. And I think going back to what we said, those people are out of reach. But sometimes they have more of a presence when they're gone. Yeah, I can agree. I can attest to that just from my own personal association relationship with grief. You said at the beginning of our conversation that you knew from the outset you wanted to write about war, if you could speak to your own personal experience with that. The trauma of war and at the same time how ordinary life is or attempts to be during wartime, you do a fantastic job of, of explaining that and laying that out and letting the reader experience what that's like because it is not like, and as you say in the book, it's not like the movies. Part of your childhood was spent that way. And would you mind telling us about that? Sure. I spent um, six years 
um, in Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. So um, I've, you know, personal experience with what it's like to live through it. And one of the horrors of war, I think, or anything traumatic, is that when it goes on long enough, it becomes normalized. So if, if I tell anybody I lived through six years of war, they immediately think I didn't have a happy childhood. But I had a really happy childhood. But I also lived through this thing, which is very traumatic. Um, I think that's because at some point, you know, in the beginning, you can stop life for a short time. But at some point, war weaves its yarns into the fabric of everyday life. And it becomes like a car accident or a heart attack or just another cause of disruption to life. It's another cause of mortality. And I wanted to kind of show that side of it, that people living in these situations, that kids living in these situations are still kids. They're still concerned about getting a pair of trendy jeans, of having birthday parties, of having a crush. And I think... It's something I think about even now quite a bit with what's going on in the world. You know, yeah. when they go on long enough, they just become part of life. Yeah, I think, again, thinking of images of what's happening right now, and you realize that people are going about their lives and then suddenly going down into the subways or, you know, the bomb shelters that you describe um, very well and how that, in the middle of a birthday party just happens. And I think we're so conditioned in so many, you know, the depictions of war in, in movies that, you know, we're in the front lines, we're in all this, that it's, you know, sort of soldiers moving against soldiers and everybody's kind of visible or, you know, in the battlefield, but the battlefields are now urban settings and, there can be a war going on, a battle going on three blocks away from where people are going about their day. Yeah. It's very bizarre, very bizarre. And I think you do, a, I mean, in reading it myself, it's, you do a wonderful job of putting the reader in that experience. It's um, wonderful and chaotic and disconcerting all at the same time. Thank yeah. you. One of the other things I noticed while I was reading it, you, the writing contains, the story contains a lot of small details about what someone's wearing, what the, what's in the living room, what's in the environment, what's in the space, whether it's outdoors. You do, you spend time on small details. And I guess I wanted to ask about your choices in doing that. And yeah. Your choices and, and how important it is. It's obviously important to you and what you hope to achieve by that level, diving into that level of detail. Hmm. That's interesting because in Turan, I had very specific goals for each of the worlds. In Turan, I wanted to be descriptive without giving away too much details. So the sections felt dreamlike and magical. So while there are descriptions of, of flowers and scenery and such, there's very little in terms of place names, brand names, specific songs, 
that was very purposeful. I wanted it to feel vivid and very colorful without getting into certain specifics. Okay. In New Jersey and New York worlds, I wanted to kind of do the opposite. I wanted to have more details and include names and of places and such and songs. But I wanted that world to feel drab and gray. I almost wanted the reader, when they're reading the book, to see the Turan sections as if they're watching it in color and read the Jersey sections as if it's black and white. I can see that. I can see that totally. I think you do a great job of that. I got to say uh, that in the New York, New Jersey sections where you are spending time with in details and also sort of um, a little bit of, you know, I think the, the subplot at work and all that sort of shows this sort of mundane piece of life, right? That it's going on while all this other magical stuff is happening. And it feels very DeLillo-esque to me. Because oh wow, that's such a compliment. Well, it it does because I think you know he is as we you and I have discussed Don DeLillo a lot, and um, he's one of my favorite writers. And I think that he does a masterful job of describing everyday mundane, what we would consider mundane details, while his characters are interacting with each other. That it makes it feel totally natural. Some I don't know if that's the right word. But it feels like I'm observing life, real life. And I think that's the difference between your magical world in Tehran and, and New Jersey and, and New York. It really feels like, yeah, I'm walking down the Lower East Side going to an Ethiopian restaurant or whatever it was. And uh, I enjoyed that very much. I think you really hit it on the nail because that's really what I was trying to do. I was really trying to make it mundane. I think I even, one of my first couple chapters is called Everydayness and Sewers. It's really <laughs> about just like every day, right. same thing every day, how it just starts to like wear on you when other things aren't going right. Yeah, it doesn't help. It doesn't help the foundation of it because it feels while you're experiencing something as devastating as as a loss that some folks would say, oh, you know, the everyday mundane stuff becomes an anchor somehow that you can hold on to and you're not going to drift away into this other world or wherever else, whatever else grief is going to make you do, right? Which can be vast and weird. But in a lot of ways, it doesn't. It just makes it worse. Because it's not the same any longer. It's just not. So that routine and all of that is just another reminder that your life has changed irrevocably. It's very well put. Thank you. So now that this one's out in the world, I have two questions. One, (laughs) can you tell me what you found to be the most difficult piece of this entire process? I mean, from the inception... And then searching for, you know, revisions and then agent and publishing and out into the world. And now you're in a whole other phase of what is the writer's experience. It doesn't end. I have to pick only one thing. No, you can, you can <laughs> talk about it all. Because I think, once again, you know, as writers, we all have our own different sort of viewpoint 
on what that process is. And folks on the outside world, as it is with any art, don't understand not just the creative process or the work that has to go into the actual production of whatever that piece of work is, but then there's this whole other piece that happens afterwards where you have to become a marketing person and you're dealing with social media and you're trying to sell the book. And that's another piece of the brain and a whole other, whole other thing. So it's a long continuum that happens from the first time you put a letter on a page until you do podcasts. <laughs> um, I think so much of it was harder than I imagined, you know, from, from the very beginning. Just, just having such a long, uh, a piece of work that's so long and then being able to pull these threads through hundreds of pages was just something I wasn't used to. But psychologically for me, I think one of the hardest things is just uh, putting myself, keeping myself in the chair to write. You know, I kind of have a playful personality. Um, so, you know, I can't write like nine hours. That's just not how I work. But I, during the writing of this, I would, I reward myself. You know, if you write this many pages or if you write this many hours, you can go out for a walk or go meet up with a friend or have gummy bears or whatever it is. <laughs> the <you> gummy, <laughs> infamous gummy bears. Regular gummy bears, friends. Regular ones, I was going to say. <laughs> In terms of craft, I had a bit of a problem slowing down in scenes. And so when you were saying, like, descriptions and things, it makes me happy because I really, um, I'm one of those people who gets, likes to get to a point and then gets, get to the next plot point. I I'm, think that's the journalist in me. So I really had to force myself to like stay in a scene to try to create this three-dimensional world. So that's, that's the craft side of it. But then there's all this other stuff that's difficult. It's just, a, it's just a long process. But I also remind myself that it's a privilege, too, to be able to do this. Absolutely. You know, every time I complain to myself or I think, oh, this is hard and that's hard, I just go, okay. What a privilege it is to have the time to be able to make space, to be able to put words down on paper. Yeah. And then a bigger privilege that someone's willing to read it, that you can have a conversation with your readers through words. Yeah, it's a wonderful gift. It really is. What are you working on now? I'm working on another novel about a climate scientist at a New Jersey university who heads to Alaska to find out why her project has come to a halt. It's, um, it's got some magic, it's got some mythology, and it's a story of a woman's limits, the effects of climate change, and how the past is uh, forever part of the future. Or so that's the plan. We know how these <laughs> things go. So the story could change. Yeah, but, but right it now, sounds... that's what it's about. Okay, do you have a title? Uh, not something I'm happy with, so okay. I probably shouldn't. Okay, that's fine. I just I have a title, but I'm I'm not happy with it. Okay. Like for for almond, when I had the title, I was like, "This is the title." There was no doubt in my mind. There is no other title for this book, so I think Mm. you you definitely hit the nail on the head and accomplished a great, great novel. It's 
beautiful. Oh, thank you, Jack. That means the world to me. This is Jack Sani. You're listening to The Leisure Class with my guest, Sara Gadarzi. Don't go away. All right, Joe, welcome to this segment that we call Shake It Up, where we dive into the mysteries, history, and fun of craft cocktail making. That's my co-host over there, Brad, behind the bar. How you doing this Hi, evening? Hi, Jack. And we have a special... Wonderful. <laughs> you are always wonderful, my friend. And tonight, we have a special guest. Sara is joining us, and tonight's cocktail is called The Almond and the Apricot named after her book. Thanks for hanging around for Shake It Up tonight. Thanks for having me. Brad, you want to break this down for us and tell us what's in the almond in the apricot? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we were talking about this the other day, I was totally inspired by, you know, the martini episode that we recently recorded Mm -hmm. and how, how delicate of a balance the martini is. And I was looking at at Sarah's recipe for, for her cocktail. And I wanted to kind of riff on that a little bit. And so what I did was I took three ounces of Bryn whiskey, which is a, a beautiful single malt French whiskey. Now this is a woman owned and operated distillery and it is crafted from locally indigenous heirloom barley and aged in new French Limousin barrels and and cognac casks, so you have this kind of very very delicate whiskey, but but it's a um, kind of fruit forward, if you will, um, and it is look I can't I I cannot uh, espouse the wonders of this whiskey enough. I always have it on hand, but it's also a very delicate drinker, and I didn't want to mess that up too much. But I really wanted to add in you know the apricot and the almond, and so. I started tasting a lot of apricot liqueurs and I landed on um, this Abricot du Roussillon from uh, Gifford. I'm probably butchering that because I don't speak French, but uh, I'm doing my best here, people. <laughs> uh, and uh, and just a so just a quarter ounce of that with three ounces of Bryn, a quarter ounce of Amaretto for that almond, uh, a quarter ounce of Coqui Storico uh, Sweet Vermouth, Three dashes of cardamom bitters. Now, I love cardamom. I don't know if you guys are into that spice, but I thought it really would pair well with this, just done in very, very minute um, doses, if you will. And then I took um, pink peppercorn and I um, made a tincture out of it and, and put it in an atomizer and perfumed the top of it. So you get like the, the aromatics of... The, the peppercorn, which is kind of herbaceous and, and obviously a little peppery, but it also pairs well with that, that the sweetness of the apricot and the almond and kind of the fruit forward whiskey. So you got a lot of these different things going on. And that's, that was my version of Le Monde et l'Abricot, which everything sounds better in French. Oh, don't say Even that to Jack. Oh, no, Sarah is a big <laughs> Francophile. And when I told her, no, no. <laughs> no, when I told her that, oh, man, Brad found this crazy French whiskey and like <laughs> all this stuff, I figured that would be right up her alley. You know, it's amazing, man, because you take this stuff to such a beautifully detailed, crafted level, right? 
my version of this cocktail uh, because I don't have, you know, a lot of the same things available to me here in Mississippi. So my version of it was two ounces of bourbon, three quarters of an ounce of Kochi vermouth. Because apricot liqueur, when I went to like three or four places around here, I couldn't find anything. So what I did was I got some canned peaches and heavy syrup. You and mean I, apricots, right? Not, not oh, yeah. Peaches. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take another sip. I'm going to take sip. <laughs> Jesse will edit that in post. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll leave it in. You know, it's like part of the bloopers reel. <laughs> okay, Sara. <laughs> apricot oh, I'm not a francophile but whatever <laughs> oh yes you are come on we go through this all the time it's like oh the french desserts and the italian well the french desserts are way better i mean that's just fact <laughs> but anyway this isn't about that <laughs> so all right so i got some canned apricots and in heavy syrup and what i did was made a simple syrup blended it you know okay. smoothed yeah. it out and man, it's a it's a wonderful cocktail, and you know I'm dying to try your version of it for sure because I think the almond notes and the peppercorn aspect that you're bringing into it sounds really intriguing. It's delicate, you know. Um, I started just kind of reading about you know flavor profiles that would lend themselves to the apricot, right? And 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 black peppercorn came up on that, and I was like, oh, that's I wasn't expecting that. That's interesting. And, you know, I have, I'm, I'm a spice nerd. And so I've got a bunch of whole pink peppercorn. And I was like, oh, I could do some really cool stuff with this and perfume it so it doesn't overpower it. And, and if, you've, if you've had pink peppercorn, I'm sure you have, it's, it's very, very different than, than black. Right. And there's a, there's a bit of a sweetness to that spice with it. And just, you just use a little bit. And and it delicately alters that flavor profile. I thought it was I thought it was quite nice. I was just gonna say I, I also thought it was interesting that amaretto can also be made from apricot kernels. So it could be made from almonds or apricot kernels. Sorry, you know it's interesting you, you bring that up is Jack and I were first discussing this cocktail and and the almond and the apricot. And I told them that Orgeat syrup, which is made of um, which is made of uh, almonds, usually like really good ones has apricot pit in it or the the apricot seed in it, as well as the almond, and it helps give it a more um, marzipan kind of flavor to it. Mm. And of course, it is not apricot season, and <laughs> I was looking all over town to to find some some apricots so so I can you know, get the pits and use those and make an orja and go that, go down that road with it. Um, but alas, I could not find any, but, but it's, it's funny that you bring that up because yes, the, the something about the apricot seed or pit, if you will, is, uh, is used in many different flavorings. This has been great. Y'all. I thank you so much, Brad, your artistry and craftsmanship, a beautiful presentation. An intro, thank you. Uh, you know, interpretation of Sarah's book. It really is wonderful. And Sarah, thanks so much for like jumping in for shaking up tonight. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's tons of fun. Yeah, great hanging with you, Sarah. Yeah, same here, Brad. And thanks again. It's a beautiful cocktail. 
Well, that's it for this episode of The Leisure Class, friends. I really appreciate you joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends all about The Leisure Class, brought to you by Newsweek. Newsweek.